Monster's Lair. I am your host, the monster himself, J.D. Hutchins. On today's episode, we will be discussing the devil's music. Nope, not heavy metal. Nope, not rock and roll. No, not early jazz. I'm talking about the original devil's music, Mississippi Delta Blues. We'll be covering it all from Robert Johnson to Screamin' Jay Hawkins. We'll even be talking about some of the modern musicians who are still keeping the spirit of Delta Blues alive to this day. So, sit back, relax if you can, and enjoy another episode of The Monster's Lair. Delta Blues is one of the earliest known styles of blues. It originated in the Mississippi Delta, a region of the U.S. stretching from the upper northwest corner of Mississippi to Pittsburgh, Mississippi in the south, and from the Mississippi River in the west to the Yazoo River in the east. The Mississippi Delta is famous for its fertile soil and for its poverty. Delta Blues is regarded as a regional variant of country blues. Guitar and harmonica are its dominant instruments. Slide guitar is a hallmark of the style. Vocal styles in Delta Blues range from introspective and soulful to passionate and fiery. 
although Delta Blues certainly existed in some form or another at the turn of the 20th century. It was first recorded in the late 20s, when record companies realized the potential African-American market had for race records. The major labels produced the earliest recordings, consisting mostly of one person singing and playing an instrument. Live performances, however, more commonly involved a group of musicians. Subsequently, the early Delta Blues were extensively recorded by John Lomax and his son Alan Lomax, who crisscrossed the southern U.S., recording music played and sung by ordinary people, helping establish the canon of genres we know today as American folk music. Their recordings, numbering in the thousands, now reside in the Smithsonian Institution. According to Dixon and Godrich and Leadbitter and Slavin, Alan Lomax and the Library of Congress researchers did not record any Delta bluesmen or women prior to 1941 when he recorded Sun House and Willie Brown near Lake Cormorant, Mississippi and Muddy Waters at Stovall, Mississippi. However, this claim has been disputed as John and Alan Lomax had recorded Book of White in 1939, Lead Belly in 1933, and most likely others. Many Delta Blues artists such as Big Joe Williams moved to Detroit and Chicago creating a pop-influenced city blues style. This was displaced by the new Chicago blues sound in the early 1950s, pioneered by Delta bluesmen Muddy Waters, Helen Wolf, and Lil Walter, harking back to a Delta-influenced sound, but with amplified instruments. Delta Blues was also an inspiration for the creation of British skiffle music, from which eventually came the British Invasion Bands, while simultaneously influencing British Blues, which led to the birth of her early hard rock and heavy metal. Because the early blues men and women were the downtrodden, illiterate descendants of slaves, who were not seen as skilled enough to work as servants or in un any other reputable functions, blues was n not considered respectable. Later on, blues developed in the seedy parts of towns, in juke joints, speakeasies, and brothels. Because some of the lyrics were raunchy, and most songs were about man-woman relations, drinking, lust, love, loss, and longing, Blues was considered sinful. The fact that bluesmen like Sun House and Lead Belly were convicted killers, and the legendary figure Robert Johnson was rumored to be poisoned by the jealous husband of the woman he loved, did not help solidify the reputation of the bluesmen as righteous members of the community. What enraged the pious Christian blacks who found in the church the only meaningful social institution was the way bluesmen would borrow Christian hymns and turn them into blues songs. To most blacks, and everyone else for that matter, blues was the devil's music. A traditional gospel like This Train is Bound for Glory, which carries only the righteous and the holy, would be transformed by the amazingly talented Lil Walter in his song My Babe into a secular song about how his babe she don't stand none of that midnight creepin', and when she's hot, there ain't no coolin'. This gave rise to a conflict between the Christian preachers and the preachers of the blues. Sun House, a major Delta bluesman, 
wanted to be a Baptist preacher, according to his song Preaching Blues. Delta Blues is permeated with religion, myths, magic, and voodoo attributing to its haunting and mystic tone. One of its most enduring and endearing myths is that of the crossroads. Famous bluesmen of the area were associated with the devil and rumored to have met him at the crossroads where they sold their souls for talent to play their instruments in a virtuosic manner. Many of them played into these rumors in their songs and bought into the myths themselves, later relaying stories to their meetings with Satan himself to friends and family members. Many Delta Blues singers believed in the power of mojo from the hoodoo religion, which is a magic spell or charm that gives a person magical powers to succeed in every endeavor, including the art of seduction. The word has become an integral part of daily discourse. The great bluesman Muddy Waters borrowed an up-tempo jump-a-blues song by an obscure blues woman, Ann Cole, titled Got My Mojo Workin', and turned it into a classic Delta-style song, thus immortalizing the magic and mythology of the mojo power. Most of the great Delta blues singers were illiterate or had little to no education. None of them studied music, and yet they ended up creating some of the most enduring and charming songs produced anywhere in the 20th century. Most musicians would sing standard blues songs, but would add and subtract verses as they go along. Some of them wrote their own lyrics and were both troubadours of music and poetry. The early instruments of the blues were the banjo, later replaced by the guitar, and the harmonica with piano and drums introduced later in juke joints. The great Delta bluesmen from the 1920s until the early 1940s were solo acts. Bluesmen like Robert Johnson and Sunhouse would play to black audiences at fish fries for small fees. Many sang about their yearnings, their loss, their lovers, and their demons. The Delta Blues were a mirror image of the men and women who sang them. Poor, downtrodden, sad, haunted, dark, evil, mysterious, frightening, yet equally light, joyful, lovers of life, and all it had to offer. Broke when I was born, that's when I'm howling. A lot of people's wondering, what is the blues? I hear a lot of people saying the blues, the blues, but I'm going to tell you what the blues is. When you ain't got no money, you got the blues. When you ain't got no money to pay your house rent, you still got the blues. A lot of people holler about, I don't like no blues, but when you ain't got no money and can't pay your house rent and can't buy you no food, you damn sure got the blues. If you ain't got no money, you got the blues, cause you're thinking evil. That's right. Anytime you're thinking evil, you thinking about the blues. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, that grovelly, deep-throated, scary-sounding man that you were just listening to is none other than Howlin' Wolf. Howlin' Wolf is a Delta Blues musician who was famous for signing to Cadillac Records and having a 
damn near blood feud with fellow blues musician Muddy Waters. Howlin' Wolf was called as such because he had a signature high-pitched howl that he did while singing. Um, you'll come to find that a lot of these Delta Blues musicians, while not the best overall musicians, they all have a signature sound. They all have something that they can call their own, and they all excel in one type of form of singing um, than the others. Um, they also all have a captivating, mysterious kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like a, they draw you in. It's almost like a hypnotic quality. When you listen to their voices, they're so powerful, they're so unique, they're so, you know, original. It's like nothing before. They kind of draw you in. They get you into a, a sense of, you know, just straight, pure attention. And that's how they get you. So without further ado, let's hear a song from Howlin' Wolf. He talks in that segment about, you know, the blues coming from a place of evil. When you're thinking evil, you got the blues. And that's the name of this song. This is Evil by Howlin' Wolf. From home, can't sleep at night. Grab your telephone, something just ain't right. That's evil. Evil is going on wrong. I am warning you, brother. You better watch your happy home.
Howlin Wolf was born Chester Arthur Burnett on June 10, 1910. He was a Chicago blues singer, guitarist, and harmonica player. Originally from Mississippi, the home of the Delta Blues, he moved to Chicago in adulthood and became successful forming a rivalry with fellow bluesman Muddy Waters. With a booming voice and imposing physical presence, he is one of the best-known Chicago blues artists. The musician and critic Cub Coda noted no one could match Howlin' Wolf for the singular ability to rock the house down to the foundation while simultaneously scaring its patrons out of its wits. Producer Sam Phillips recalled, When I heard Howlin' Wolf, I said, This is for me. This is where the soul of a man never dies. Several of his songs, including Smokestack Lightning, Killin' Floor, and Spoonful, have become blues and blues rock standards. In 2011, Rolling Stone magazine ranked him number 54 on its list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. In January 1976, Burnett checked into his Veterans Administration Hospital in Hines, Illinois for kidney surgery. He died of complications from the procedure on January 10, 1976 at the age of 65. He was buried in Oak Ridge Cemetery outside Chicago in plot in section 18 on the east side of the road. His gravestone has an image of a guitar and a harmonica etched into it. One of the most prominent Delta Blues musicians of the early 20th century was Tommy Johnson. The Delta Blues were also known by another name, the Devil's Blues. For many believed that the music its artists were closely associated with the devil. Some had even come to believe that artists, like the unrelated blues musician Robert Johnson, had to have sold their souls in order to gain such mastery over the guitars which made them famous. After recording 16 songs and 3 sessions between 1928 and 1929, he stopped recording forever, mistakenly believing that he had signed away his right to record. However, among those 16 songs that are three certified blues classics, the Can't Heat Blues, Big Road Blues, and the song Cool Drink of Water Blues. Unlike most Delta recordings, the song features two guitarists, Johnson, accompanied by fellow artist Charlie McCoy. The rhythmic tension they create between their instruments combined with Tommy's one-of-a-kind falsetto vocal performance make this song a uniquely beautiful moment in American music history. Many claim that it was Robert Johnson who began the legend of selling one soul to the devil to play the blues. One of his biographers, Tom Graves, stated in 2008 that this story actually originated with Tommy Johnson and was later to as ascribed to Robert. Tommy was indeed a perfect candidate for such a damnable act he was a troubled soul and a chronic alcoholic. He had, however, been somewhat commercially successful during his lifetime. With hits like Canned Heat Blues, a song about drinking methanol from the cooking fuel Sterno, his live performances were legendary, inspiring the flamboyant antics of later rock and roll artists. He was known to play the guitar behind his neck, in between his legs, and in midair. Aside from his guitar, Tommy's voice was unique 
and incredibly difficult for anyone to imitate, for he was able to express a wide range of vocal tones effortlessly. People at the time started to believe that such great ability must have come from the devil himself. This idea became all the more popular when Tommy himself began to conf confirm the claim. Sometime after Tommy's death in 1966, his brother Liddell Johnson stated in an interview with Tommy's biographer, David Evans, that Tommy had in fact told him about his pact with Satan personally. Not only that, Tommy had supposedly described how anyone could sell their soul to the devil. Now if Tommy was living, he'd tell you. He said the reason he knowed so much said he sold his self to the devil. I asked how. He said, if you want to learn how to play anything you want to play and learn how to play songs yourself, you take your guitar, you go to where a road crosses that way, where a crossroads is. Get there. Be sure to get there just a little 412 that night so you'll know you'll be there. You have your guitar, and you'll be playing a piece there by yourself. A big black man will walk up there and take your guitar, he'll tune it, and then he'll play a piece and hand it back to you. That's the way I learned to play anything I want. Liddell Johnson had been a blues musician himself, occasionally performing with his brother in his older years, Something about the music and his lifestyle made him turn to the church and become a man of God, believing, like many in the area, that blues was the work of the devil. Whilst Tommy only left behind a small number of recorded works, they are considered masterpieces. The vinyl records he released at the time now considered precious treasures. In 2013, one of his original singles sold on eBay for over $37,000, making it the most expensive 78 RPM record ever sold at the time. It would seem that at least in the case of Tommy Johnson, the devil certainly held up his end of the bargain. Oh, uh -huh. 
Here's Tommy Johnson and Charlie McCoy now with Cool Drink of Water Blues.
Sun House recalled about Robert Johnson. He blew a harmonica and he was pretty good with that, but he wanted to play guitar. It was from Sun House and friend Willie Brown that Robert Johnson first learned. Robert would watch House and Brown play, and when they took a break, he would use one of their guitars. According to House, he was not good at all. Such a racket you never heard. Get that guitar away from that boy, people would say. He's running people crazy with it. So how did he become one of the most influential guitarists of all time? Ask some, and they will say, it was by making a deal with the devil. In Rosedale, Mississippi, at the junction of Highway 8 and Highway 1, is where it is said by Sun House to occur. This song is Crossroad by Robert Johnson. Robert Leroy Johnson was born May 8, 1911, and he was an American blues singer, songwriter, and musician. 
His landmark recordings in 1936 and 1937 display a combination of singing, guitar skills, and songwriting talent that has influenced later generations of musicians. Johnson's poorly documented life and death have given rise to much legend. The one most closely associated with his life is that he sold his soul to the devil at a local crossroads to achieve musical success. He is now recognized as a master of the blues, particularly the Delta blues style. As a traveling performer who played mostly on street corners in juke joints and at Saturday night dances, Johnson had little commercial success or public recognition in his lifetime. He participated in only two recording sessions, one in San Antonio in 1936 and one in Dallas in 1937 that produced 29 distinct songs with 13 surviving alternate takes. Recorded by famed Country Music Hall of Fame producer Don Law, these songs recorded at low fidelity in improvised studios were the totality of his record output. Most were released as 10-inch 78 RPM singles from 1937 to 1938, with a few released after his death. Other than these recordings, very little was known of him during his life outside the small musical circuit in the Mississippi Delta, where he spent most of his life. Much of his story has been reconstructed after his death by researchers. According to legend, as a young man living on a plantation in rural Mississippi, Johnson had a tremendous desire to become a great blues musician. He was instructed to take his guitar to a crossroad near Dockey Plantation at midnight. There he was met by a large black man, the devil, who took the guitar and tuned it. The devil played a few songs and then returned the guitar to Johnson, giving him a mastery of the instrument. This story of a deal with the devil at the crossroads mirrors the legend of Faust. In exchange for his soul, Johnson was able to create the blues for which he became famous. This legend was developed over time and has been chronicled by Geraldine Wardlow, Edward Komara, and Elijah Wald, who sees the legend as largely dating from Johnson's rediscovery by white fans more than two decades after his death. Sun House once told the story to Pete Welding as an explanation of Johnson, Johnson's astonishingly rapid mastery of the guitar. Welding reported it as a serious belief in a widely read article in Downbeat in 1966. Other interviews failed to elicit any confirmation from House, and there were fully two years between House's observation of Johnson as first a novice and then a master. In another version, a storyteller placed the meeting not at a crossroads, but in a graveyard. This resembles the story told to Steve LeVere that Ike Zinnerman of Hazelhurst, Mississippi, learned to play the guitar at midnight while sitting on tombstones. Zinnerman is believed to have influenced the playing of the young Johnson.
Robert Leroy Johnson died of mysterious circumstances in August 16, 1938. Depending who you talk to, Robert Johnson either died or was killed at the age of 27, making him a very early member of the 27 Club. Robert Do Johnson died near Greenwood, Mississippi, and the most common theory is Johnson was poisoned by the jealous husband of a woman with whom he had flirted. Others say he died of syphilis, or pneumonia, but no one knows for sure except for Robert himself. The last song he ever wrote was a song titled Hellhounds on My Trail, and you can hear that song now. I got to keep moving, I got to keep 
Son, House Jr., was born March 21, 1902. He was an American Delta bluesman, singer, and guitarist noted for his highly emotional style of singing and guitar playing. After years of hostility to secular music, a preacher, and for a few years also a church pastor, he turned to blues performance at the age of 25. He quickly developed a unique style by applying the rhythmic, drive, vocal power, and emotional intensity of his preaching to his newly learned idiom. In a short career interrupted by a spell in Parchman Farm Penitentiary, he developed a point that Charlie Patton, the foremost blues artist of the Mississippi Delta region, invited him to share engagements and to accompany him to a 1930 recording session for Paramount Records. Issued at the start of the Great Depression, the records did not sell and uh, did not lead to national recognition. Locally, House remained popular, and then in the 1930s, together with Patton's associate Willie Brown, he was the leading musician of Cahoma County. There he was a formative influence on Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters. In 1941 and 1942, House and the members of his band were recorded by Alan Lomax, and John W. Wark for the Library of Congress and Fisk University. The following year, he left the Delta for Rochester, New York, and gave up music. Don't you mind people grinning in your face? Don't mind people grinning in your face. Yeah, just bear this in mind. A true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind people grinning? 
in your face. You know your mother will talk about you, your sisters and your brothers too. Yes, don't care how you're trying to live, they'll talk about you still. Yes, but by who is in mind, a true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind, people grinning in your face. Don't mind, people grinning in your face. Don't mind, people grinning in your face. Oh, there's bad hood is in mind. A true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind and people grinning in your face? You know they'll jump you up and down. They'll carry you all around and around. Just as soon as your back or turn, they'll be trying to crush you down. Yes, but bow this in mind. A true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind people grinning in your face? Don't mind people grinning in your face. Don't mind people grinning in your face. Oh, Lord, just bear who is in mind. A true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind? Around 1928, Sun House had been playing in a juke joint when a man went on a shooting spree, wounding House in the leg, and he allegedly shot the man dead. House received a 15-year sentence at the Mississippi State Penitentiary at Parchman Farm, of which he served two years between 1928 and 1929. He credited his re-examination and release to an appeal by his family, but also spoke of the intervention by the influential white planter for whom they worked. The date of the killing and the duration of his sentence are unclear. House gave different accounts to different interviewers, and searches by his biographer Daniel Beaumont found no details in the court records of Cahoma County or in the archive of the Mississippi Department of Corrections.
Sunhouse was heavily influential to his peers in the Delta Blues scene. He taught Robert Johnson how to play guitar, with a little help from the devil, of course. And Muddy Waters considered Sunhouse to be his most important influence in the blues. Howlin' Wolf thought that Sunhouse was essentially the greatest blues musician and caught him play when he could. He was especially fond of House's bottleneck slide style of playing. Muddy Waters said of Sunhouse once, that man was the king. Sunhouse died in October 19, 1988 from complications from Alzheimer's disease. Tell me who's that writing? John the Revelator, tell me who's that riding? John the Revelator, tell me who's that riding? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seal. Who's that riding? John the Revelator, tell me who's that riding? John the Revelator, well, who's that riding? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seal. You know, God walked down in the cool of the day, called Adam by his name. And he refused to answer because he's naked and ashamed. Who's that riding? John the Revelator. Who's that riding? John the Revelator. Who's that riding? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seas. You know Christ had twelve apostles, and three he led away. Say, watch with me one hour, till I go yon and pray. Tell me who's that riding, John the Revelator. Tell me who's that riding, John the Revelator. Who's that riding, John the Revelator. Wrote the book of the seven seas. Who's that riding? John the Revelator. Tell me who's that riding? John the Revelator. Who's that riding? John the Revelator. Wrote the book 
37 seal. Christ came on Easter morning. Mary and Martha was down to see. God tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. Tell me who's writing John the Revelator. Tell me who's the writing John the Revelator. Tell me who's the writing John the Revelator. Wrote the book of the seventh seal. Who's the writing John the Revelator. Who's the writing John the Revelator. Tell me who's the writing John the Revelator. Wrote the book of the seventh seal. McKinley Morganfield was born on April 4, 1913, and was known professionally as Muddy Waters. He was an American blues singer, songwriter, and musician who was often cited as the father of modern Chicago blues, and an important figure on the post-war blues scene. His style of playing has been described as raining down Delta Beatitude. Muddy Waters grew up in Stov on the Stoville Plantation near Clarksdale, Mississippi, and by age 17 was playing guitar in the harmonica. Emulating the local blues artists Sunhouse and Robert Johnson, he was recorded in Mississippi by Alan Lomax for the Library of Congress in 1941. In 1943, he moved to Chicago to become a full-time professional musician. In 1946, he recorded his first records for Columbia Records and then for Aristocat Records, a newly formed label run by the brothers Leonard and Phil Chess. In the early 1950s, Muddy Waters and his band Little Walter Jacobs on harmonica, Jimmy Rogers on guitar, Elga Edmonds, also known as Elgin Evans, on drums, and Otis Spann on piano, recorded several blues classics, some with the bassist and songwriter Willie Dixon. These songs included Hoochie Coochie Man, I Just Want to Make Love to You, and I'm Ready. In 1958, he traveled to England laying the foundations of the resurgence of interest in blues there. His performance at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1960 was recorded and released as his first live album at Newport in 1960. <clears throat> Muddy Waters' music has influenced various American music genres, including rock and roll and rock music.
Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf had an intense rivalry. When Howling Wolf arrived in Chicago in 1952, Muddy gave him a warm welcome and even let him stay in his house. They soon became rivals, largely due to Wolf's highly competitive and jealous nature. In 1955, Wolf even filed a grievance with Chicago's African American chapter of the American Federation of Musicians, claiming Muddy had stiffed him out of some gigs at a local club. The two men also kept a close eye on each other's bands, with Muddy stealing away Wolf's great guitarist Hubert Sumlin, and Wolf returning the favor by snatching sax player Eddie Shaw from Muddy, although on recordings they often shared the brilliant Otis Spann on piano. Wolf was good at taking care of business. He offered his band members health insurance. He took a dim view of Muddy's skills as a band leader. Musicians who played for Wolf were expected to carry themselves professionally just as he did, which meant being on time, dressing properly, and not smoking or drinking on stage. In contrast, Muddy's band hit it hard on stage and off. Jimmy Lee is quoted as saying, All of us was drinking. Everybody would be drunk. They'd call us the Muddy Waters drunken ass band. Shit, man, when you're playing the blues all night long, that's life, man. Of course, the only legacy that really matters is the music. Some days I need Wolf, others muddies the man.
Waters died in his sleep from heart failure at his home in Westmont, Illinois on April 30, 1983 from cancer-related complications. He was transported from his Westmont home, which he lived in for the last decade of his life, to Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove, Illinois. There he was pronounced dead at the age of 70. The funeral service was held on May 4, 1983, and throngs of blues musicians and fans attended his funeral at Restville Cemetery in Alsip, Illinois. Muddy Waters is buried next to his wife, Geneva. Thank you. 
has formally denied your request to leave. Please enjoy your stay in the monster's lair. Alright, so for this next artist, I'm extremely excited. Um, I'm about to get geeked up on you guys, and I haven't got geeked up on this podcast yet. But we're going to be talking about the later years of the Delta Blues And we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this next individual. That individual being none other than the complete, total badass that is Screaming Jay Hawkins. This man was a Delta Bluesman. He was raised by Blackfoot Indians. He was a professional boxer. He was the first ever shock rock performer. And this is the same man who as a young... Young man once told his music teacher and this is documented in a 1993 interview but he once told his music teacher to leave before i make your life miserable because with the type of music i want to play the things i want to do with music and don't want to do the old conventional way that everybody knows i want to come up with my own ideas 
I've got all the information that I need to get from you to do what I want. Now if you stick around, I'm going to make your life miserable. So let's talk a little bit about the man, the myth, the legend that is the mighty Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Jay Hawkins was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. At the age of 18 months, Hawkins was put up for adoption and shortly thereafter was adopted and raised by Blackfoot Indians. Hawkins studied classical piano as a child and learned guitar in his 20s. His initial goal was to become an opera singer, but when his initial ambitions failed, he began his career as a conventional blues singer and pianist. He joined the U.S. Army with a forged birth certificate in 1942 at the age of 13 and allegedly served in a combat role with his fellow soldiers and higher-ups around him, ignoring the fact that he was substantially underage. During this time, he also entertained the troops as part of his service. In 1944, he enlisted in the Air Force, being honorably discharged in 1952. Hawkins was an avid, formidable boxer during his years on the U.S. Army and later Air Force's boxing circuit. In 1949, he was the middleweight boxing champion of Alaska. In 1951, he joined guitarist Tiny Grimes' band and was subsequently featured on some of Grimes' recordings. When Hawkins became a solo performer, he often performed in a stylish wardrobe of leopard skins, red leather, and wild hats. Here's Screaming Jay Hawkins now with his biggest hit, I Put a Spell on You. Stop the thing 
Soon after the release of I Put a Spell on You, radio disc jockey Alan Freed offered Hawkins $300 to emerge from a coffin on stage. Hawkins initially declined, reportedly saying no black dude gets in a coffin alive. They don't expect to get out. However, he later relented and soon created an outlandish stage persona in which performances began with the coffin and included gold and leopard skin costumes and notable voodoo stage props such as his smoking skull on a stick named Henry and rubber snakes. These props were suggestive of voodoo but also presented with comic overtones that invited comparison to a black Vincent Price. Despite commercial success of the gimmick, Hawkins resented the schlock factor that made him famous. He found it exploitive and believed it undermined his sincerity as a vocalist and a balladeer. In a 1973 interview, he bemoaned the screaming epithet given to him by his label OK Records, saying, If it were up to me, I wouldn't be screaming Jay Hawkins. James Brown did an awful lot of screaming, but never got called screaming James Brown. Why can't people take me as a regular singer without making a boogeyman out of me? Here's a more serious song from the man himself. This song is called Portrait of a Man.
portrait of a man. As I paint a wrinkled brow, Come on, folks. Listen to that song and tell me that doesn't give you goosebumps all the way up. I mean, that man's voice is so powerful, so unique. It just puts you in whatever emotion that he's trying to get across to you. Whatever Screaming Jay Hawkins wants you to feel, you feel it while he's singing. If he wants you to laugh, you'll laugh. If he wants you to be terrified, you'll have a chill run down your spine. If he wants you to feel hurt, pain, sadness, he definitely conveys it in that song and portrait of a man. Oh, it's just incredible to me how good of an artist that man really is. Although Hawkins was not considered a major success by critics, as a recording artist, his highly theatrical performances from I Put a Spell on You onward earned him a steady career as a live performer for decades afterward and influenced subsequent acts. He opened for Fats Domino, Tiny Grimes, and the Rolling Stones. This exposure in turn influenced such rocked acts as Alice Cooper, Tom Waits, The Cramps, Screaming Lord Such, Black Sabbath, Credence Clearwater Revival, Arthur Brown, Led Zeppelin, Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie, and Glenn Danzig. He was the shock rock icon. I mean, some of the biggest names in shock rock cite him as an influence. Um, Vox Magazine once described Hawkins as the original goth icon. So he has a huge, huge impact on modern rock music, especially that stuff in the 80s, the 90s, early 2000s. I mean, you can draw almost a direct line from an act like Slipknot nowadays with the masks and the insane theatrics. Draw a line directly back through their influences. It's going to touch Screaming Jay Hawkins. 
Same thing with Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper was a huge fan of Screaming Jay. Um, Rob Zombie, I'm sure Rob Zombie knows exactly who Screaming Jay Hawkins is. I'm sure he's a huge fan of his performances, just like I am. And especially some of his crazy songs. I mean, you're talking about a guy who once performed a song called Constipation Blues in a sold-out arena in France in front of a live crowd with an actual toilet on stage. So you're talking about a guy that was committed to his craft. Even if later on in life he bemoaned it and, you know, talked down about him being just a niche act, I mean, he knew what he was doing when he was performing, and I feel like no matter how bitter he became later in life, a small part of him had to enjoy every second of that. With that being said, here's another theatrical song from Screaming Jay. This song is called Whistling Through the Graveyard. This is another one of his uh, tongue-in-cheek, you know, voodoo nuanced kind of songs but check it out i'm sure you'll enjoy it Across a hooligan night, 
lived to be 70 years old and died in the year in 2000 in France during complications from surgery on a brain aneurysm. His legacy lives on through all modern shock rock acts and all of the artists who consider him a great influence on their craft. So this is a long-form episode, but even in doing so, a long-form episode, I still will not be able to cover all of the great Delta Blues musicians who had an impact on the future of music. Um, so I'm going to do a just a quick rapid-fire lightning round on some of the other notable names of the Delta Blues. So you have guitar player Charlie Patton, born in 1891 died in 1934. You got John Lee Hooker, born in 1917, died in 2001. You got Booker White, 1906 through 1977. Big Joe Williams, 1903 to 1982. Skip James, 1902 to 1969. Lead Belly, 1888 to 1949. Willie Brown, 1900 to 1952. Mississippi John Hurt, 1892 to 1966. R.L. Burnside, 1926 to 2005. David Edwards, 1915 to 2011. Robert Lockwood, 1915 to 2006. Sonny Boy Williamson the second, 1912 to 1965. Arthur Crudup, 1905 to 1974. Junior Kimbrough, 1930 to 1998. Blind Willie McTell, from 1898 to 1959. James Cotton, famed harmonica player, 1935 to 2017. J.D. Short, from 1902 to 1962. Pine Top Perkins, guitar player, from 1913 to 2011. Kansas Joe McCoy from 1905 to 1950. Houston Stackhouse from 1910 to 1980. Bo Carter, 1893 to 1964. And that about covers it. I mean, there was a lot of musicians behind the scenes 
guys that played in bands with all of these guys that I've talked about early on in the episode. Um, you know, guys that were influential in traveling around the country, spreading the blues, spreading the style of Delta guitar playing with the slide guitar, the bottleneck guitars, um, you know, the lap steels. There were guys in horn sections that traveled around with these bands that had a huge influence on the big band sound. Um, so yeah, Delta Blues is a hotbed for influential musicians. They created a sound, they took that sound around the country, they spread it around and in, in different places that they t- took that sound and kind of laid in a foundation. You have places like Chicago, Detroit, New York that all kind of took what they learned from the Delta Blues musicians and made their own thing out of it. So definitely an important piece of history, a very important piece of music history. Um, These guys are very influential to musicians who came later. All right, let's talk about modern musicians or current musicians, I should say, that are carrying on the spirit of the Delta Blues to this day. First and foremost, believe it or not, is going to be one of my favorite artists, Jack White. Now, I'm not talking about the White Stripes stuff, his early stuff. I'm talking about his other groups like the Raconteurs, the Dead Weather, um, his last couple of solo albums. um, Especially his last couple of solo albums are completely stamped with Delta Blues sounds and things that he borrowed from guys he grew up loving. Um, If you've ever seen a documentary called It Might Get Loud featuring Jack White, um, The Edge from U2, and uh, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, it's a documentary on guitar playing. There's a real cool scene in that movie where Jack White confesses his love for everything Sun House. Uh, You recognize that name from Sun House that we talked about early in the episode. Jack White absolutely worships that dude. And if you ever want to see Jack White get geeked up about music fandom, go seek out the documentary. It might get loud. Watch that scene. Um, And he just sits back, puts on the record, plays it. And you can tell, man, he's a genuine fan. He loves everything about the Delta Blues. Another awesome dude that's carrying on the tradition of the Delta Blues is Chris Stone Kingfish Ingram. Uh, Kingfish was born in 1999. That's right, folks, making him at the ripe young age of 21 years old. But the dude plays blues guitar like he's been alive for 80 years, and he's learned from some of the greatest musicians living on Earth. Um, Go on YouTube, go on Google, search Kingfish, This dude will pop up, and you will be absolutely blown away by how much talent this kid has. Um, You know, he could have fit right in with some of his, you know, some of the guys that he's carrying on the spirit of. I mean, he would not have been out of place in the Delta um, playing right next to guys like Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Sun House, Robert Johnson. Um, This is how skilled and how nuanced his guitar playing is um he is born in clarksdale mississippi so he's from the delta um 
and he's almost like one of these guys has been reincarnated. I mean, he has all the hallmark, all the hallmarks of the famous Delta Blues musicians. He's got a cool nickname. He's got a cool style. He's got a interesting mystique surrounding him in that he's so young, but yet so skilled at guitar. It's like something magical there going on with him. He's so good. Um, but definitely recommend that guy. Search Kingfish. Chris Stone Ingram is his name. Another artist that a lot of people don't talk about, but she's um, definitely influenced by Delta Blues, and I'll tell you why, is Bonnie Raitt. And the reason that she is influenced by Delta Blues is because her guitar teacher, or teachers, were the Delta Blues musicians themselves. Before passing away, a few of them taught her how to play guitar, um, so she definitely has a lot of their stylistic nuances and stuff in her playing. Um, you know, she does her own thing. She wouldn't be considered Delta Blues herself, but she's definitely carrying on the tradition of things that those guys taught her. Um, if you don't know Bonnie Ray's music, give it a listen. She's been around for a while, um, and she's still active to this day, so definitely check that out. Is there any musicians that you guys know of that you know are influenced by the Delta Blues that you think I should check out? If so, hit me up, let me know. I'd definitely be willing to dive down that rabbit hole and check out some music. Alright folks, so that's going to wrap up our episode on the Delta Blues. But what do you guys think about the Delta Blues? Are you guys fans of the music? Are you guys interested in some of the artists I displayed on the show? Are you interested in some of the artists I didn't play songs from? Um, let me know. Uh, do you guys think that the Delta Blues started because Tommy Johnson or Robert Johnson and or Robert Johnson sold their soul to Satan to make a deal with the devil to be great musicians and be remembered forever? Um, how do you guys explain two illiterate, uneducated, non-classically trained musicians becoming two of the most influential and important guitar players and singer-songwriters, uh, not just of their generation, but possibly of all time. Um, do you guys believe in the mojo power? Do you think some of these guys were voodoo practitioners or hoodoo practitioners? Hoodoo being the light side of voodoo. Not necessarily evil, but, you know, it is a pagan religion. Um, they do believe in magic and spells and things of that nature. Is that is that at work here? Is that at play in making some of these guys successful? Or are these guys just great curators of their own urban legends? I want to know what you guys think. Um, I'd love to get feedback on this episode, good or bad. You know... Hit me up. Let me know. Do you guys like the Delta Blues? Had you guys known most of the stuff I talked about? Did you learn something new? Um, are you going to go seek out the other musicians that I didn't play that I did in the rapid fire round? Um, yeah, I'd love to hear. The Monsters Layer podcast is made possible by the following people whom I'd like to credit. 
logo and cover art design, Chief Alan Bailey. Music, sound beds, sound effects, and audio go to the following people. First and foremost, I'd like to thank the band Poor Man's Poison from Hanford, California for allowing me to use their song Devil's Price as the official Monsters Lair theme song. Poor Man's Poison consists of Tommy McCarthy, Ryan Hacker, Mike Jacobs, and Justin Medeiros. Additional credits go to Polly Manners, also known as The Bearded Breed, host of The Bearded Breed podcast, and frontman for Metal Messiah for allowing me the use of songs from his band. The Mad Thinker, Mike Morgan, for original beats and sound bits. Find him on Instagram at MadThinker with the number 3 in place of the E. Credit also goes out to Zachary Mueller, the owner of Void Productions, for background music, sound beds, and sound effects. Special thank yous go out to the following people. My wife, the dark, lovely, and witchy Christy Miller, for constant support and understanding of me doing this passion project. My daughters, the heathens, Haley and Harper. My partners at the Myriad Podcast Network, the Bearded Breed, Polly Manners, the Dark Knight, Brandon Davis, Dink Lord Trap God, Christian Miller, also the bass player for the Moonjacks, the Nerdsman, and Abyss, a.k.a. Zachary Mueller of Void Productions. Thank you to Thomas Burrell and Burial 13 Apparel, for support and appearances on the Monsters Lair. Shout out to Huvi Desayuno and Big Ren the Legendary from the Hard Camera Podcast for supporting the show and always shouting out my show on the air. Rest in power, Tom the Nightmare, Thomas Cunningham, the Monsters Lair former co-host and my longtime friend. And last but certainly not least, thank all of you, the listeners, for always tuning in and for your continued, constant support of the Monsters Lair. Thank you. The Monsters Lair is a proud member of the Myriad Podcast Network.